Wow. Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us uh, into the presence of the Lord so beautifully this morning. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. I bring greetings from the Evangelical Free Church of America, the Forest Lakes District. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, we uh, are the state of Wisconsin and the uh, Upper Peninsula of Michigan, just north of Wisconsin. And uh, there are 130 congregations, 30,000 people across this entire district all worshiping Jesus this weekend. And so you're part of a family. Uh, we pray for you regularly and are just thankful for the work that God is doing in this place and the testimony that you are of his goodness. And so I'm excited to be with you today and, and going to be bringing with you uh, God's word as we explore from the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew we're going to be in chapter 16, verses 13 through 20 this morning. And so uh, if you have a Bible, you can feel free to turn to that, to, to Matthew 16, 13 through 20. There will also be some slides on the screen uh, in case you ha- don't have that with you today. So as we prepare to read the message, I want to give you just a few things to think about as we read it. First, uh, in case you aren't aware... Uh, I want you to know the Gospel of Matthew. It's part of four Gospels that, that tell about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, now the thing that we need to keep in mind when we're reading uh, the Gospel of Matthew and any Gospel like this is that you, those of you seated here today, you have way more information than the original audience that we're reading about. Now we need to remind ourselves that the original audience had no idea that the cross of Jesus Christ was coming, okay? So to them, much more than us, Jesus' purpose was completely shrouded in mystery, okay? And with this in mind, we're going to observe a major turning point in the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is. And this understanding is going to really radically change the direction of ministry, heading them to the cross, And so, uh, with that in mind, I want to read for you the text, starting at verse 13 of Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys uh, of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Uh, Now pray with me now as we just dedicate this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your holy word and for the fact that it speaks to us, that your Holy Spirit actually opens our eyes and our hearts to hear and see and, and to read and to think in such a way, Father, that, that our lives are changed and transformed. And so we just ask, Father, that you'd bring these very words to life and, uh, and just speak in a way that truly transforms us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we prepare to reflect on the meaning of these verses, 
I want to give you a little information about the setting. So where was Jesus and his disciples when he uh, gave this teaching to them? We see most recently Jesus had been ministering at the Sea of Galilee, right in the heart of Jewish territory. And, and everywhere he went with his disciples, large crowds would follow him. But for the first, from the first few verses of this section, we see that Jesus took his disciples somewhere else. He went to the city of Caesarea Philippi. So this was 25 miles to the north on the very, very outskirts of Jewish territory. So here, Jesus would have been much less recognized, okay? And so this allowed him to gather with his disciples in a more private way. But, but there's more than just Jesus getting away from the crowds here. You see, Caesarea Philippi was known as the center of spiritual activity in the Roman Empire. Okay, the, the city was named after Caesar and, and, uh, and by the regional leader, whose name was Herod Philip. And so, in a way to honor the emperor and then to enshrine his name next to the emperor, he named the city Caesarea Philippi. But the previous name of the city was Panius, which was named after the Greek god Pan, who was half human, half goat, and known as the god of nature. And so in honor of the god Pan, little g-god, there was a large white marble temple built, and it was a center of pagan worship, okay? And so it's in the context of this city, this, this capital for, for pagan spirituality, that Jesus had this conversation with his disciples. So it's very important to understand that. And so with that setting in mind, let's jump back into the text. Just look at verses 13 and 14, where Jesus, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, what's helpful to understand this verse is that Jewish history had this common practice of seeing prophetic office be passed from one prophet to the next. So, from the prophet Elijah, who's taken up to the heavens, uh, the spirit of Elijah was passed to Elisha. Okay, back in Matthew 14, there's this uh, message where, where Herod, he executed John the Baptist, and then when he heard of Jesus, he what? He feared that John the Baptist was now being embodied in the person of Jesus. And so, to be clear, the Jewish people, they didn't believe in reincarnation. That was not one of their beliefs. And so here, it was more this idea of succession of role, okay? So some thought Jesus was fulfilling the role of a previous prophet, the point being this, that though the audience was clearly biblically literate, okay, so they knew the Old Testament well, and they were referring to that and trying to figure out who Jesus was, the reality is his identity was still shrouded in mystery. Now, if you think about it, there's, there's a parallel with the original audience and even the average person here or the average person out on the street in, in Three Lakes, Wisconsin. I'm sure if you went up to one of those people, just an average passerby, and, and you asked them who Jesus was, most, uh, most likely you'd get a favorable answer. They'd say he was a good guy or, or, or perhaps even God. But, but as you drill down asking more questions about their knowledge of Jesus, you'd likely discover a great deal of variety in who they think he really is. Um, the Barna Research Group, they did this survey of America in 2015, and they found that 92% of Americans 
believe that Jesus really existed. So one out of every ten, believe it or not, doesn't even necessarily uh, believe in his existence. But a large percentage of those people were not convinced that he was sinless. Okay, so most didn't think he was without sin. Uh, 62% uh, of Americans say that they've made some kind of commitment to Jesus. But most are conflicted whether it's good works or faith in Jesus that gets them to heaven. And so there's this general religious knowledge of Jesus, and yet the vast majority of people still have this mystery. They still really don't know. Perhaps some of you even this morning, you're saying, I really don't know who Jesus is. And so there's definitely some parallels there between us and the original audience. Now let's go to, back to the text, because now Jesus is going to turn the question from who do they say I am directly to the disciples, starting at verse 15. But what, what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And now we come to the first really historically important moment in this text. Peter declares his famous confession to Jesus and theologians, they call this the Petrine confession. Okay. Peter says what he says, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. Now, the risk here for us today is to underestimate the significance of this moment. Um, as I said earlier, right, the, to, to most of us who read the Gospels, um, we've, we've attended Easter services, right? We've heard a lot of sermons about who Jesus is. But what needs to land on us this morning as we look at this text is that nowhere in history, hear me now, nowhere in history had human lips ever spoken the words that Peter spoke. Nowhere had this measure of clarity regarding the identity of Jesus been understood. Peter said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, to clarify the significance, let's look back at at his first claim that Jesus was the Messiah, okay? Now, for those of you less familiar with the Bible, it's helpful to know that the Jewish people, to them the Messiah was the one prophesied about in the Old Testament, one who'd come and rescue the Jewish people from oppression and slavery, to usher in peace and the rule and reign of, of Israel. And so Peter first exclaimed that Jesus was the messianic hope of Israel. But he went even further, radically so, when he said Jesus is the Son of God. Now, our understanding of the Jewish worldview and, and what they understood and thought at the time was that there was no expectation that the coming Messiah would be deity. So, so this was a radical concept that Peter was proposing when he stated, not only you're the Messiah, but also you're the son of the living God. Now, some of you who are more familiar with your Bible, you might remember a story back in Matthew 3 where there was the baptism of Jesus. And we heard uh, in that account that the voice of God spoke over Jesus saying, this is my beloved son. But again, what we need to know is historically, those words had never again been spoken. And certainly, to our knowledge, never spoken by men, never even considered or thought about. Now, if you think that I'm overstating the significance of Peter's statement, I want you to look back at the text. In verse 17, Jesus looks at him after saying these words, and he says this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. 
Now, why was Jesus so delighted? Well, quite simply, it's because he saw something. He saw that God the Father had been at work in the heart of Peter. You see, just a few chapters ago, in chapter 14, Peter was rebuked by Jesus as the one with little faith. And now he stood before Jesus, speaking with bold clarity that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of the living God. So Jesus knew Peter's understanding it could not have come from just Peter, right? He knew that this could only come from God the Father working in his heart. Now, I'm sure many of you have had the privilege of seeing uh, heart transformed by God. Many of you are seated here today because your hearts have been transformed by God. But I can tell you there's nothing sweeter. There was a story that emerged recently in an EFCA church, a newer church in our district, where there was a businessman who, whose life was just in a shambles. His marriage was about to end, and his, everything was falling apart, his whole world. And he heard of this new church in the community, and he thought, you know, why not? I've never tried this before, but my life, as I know it, is ending why don't I just show up and give this thing a shot? And so he went to the church searching for answers. He found a welcoming community, a pastor who, who spoke the, the word of God in grace. And, and so he felt safe enough to share his story, and he did. And that day, uh, in the pastor's office, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And, and the beautiful thing about that story is now his family is attending with him at the church, their lives are being transformed. They were going this way, and now they're going this way towards Jesus. And, and we love hearing stories like this because it reminds us that God is changing hearts. And in response to this story, we should respond like Jesus did. Blessed are you. Blessed are you, you new and growing believer. Blessed are you, you addict or or a person struggling whom God is setting free from whatever it is you're dealing with. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but our Father in heaven. And so it was clear that, that God had been at work in the heart of Peter. And for this reason, Jesus was really excited. He was really excited. Now, now that Jesus' identity has been revealed okay, through the confession of Peter, what we're going to do is we're going to make two important observations of the text, okay? And and observation one is this, the purpose of Jesus to build the church, and observation two, the position of Peter and the power of the keys, okay? Uh, So let's first look at what this text has to tell us about the purpose of Jesus to build the church. You see, we see this in the first statement of the second half of verse 18, where Jesus said this, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So, in case you missed it, what's really clear here, the first and most important thing Jesus is saying is that he will build the church. Okay? Now, what's interesting, another, again, historically significant moment. I love this text. It's so important as a Christian to know this text. This is the first time that Jesus uses the word church. Okay? Now, the original Greek word that Jesus actually spoke is ekklesia which means assembly. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm building an assembly, my people. And what's important to understand here is that all of Scripture is pointing to the same outcome of what Jesus is referring to, that God is preparing a people. And so in many ways, Jesus is 
is restating a purpose that's been clear from the beginning of Scripture. And, and we're going to see this fulfillment of this assembly, uh, and, we, and we see it as a prophecy actually in the New Testament at the very end in the book of Revelation, that when Jesus comes again, he's going to establish his new kingdom in a people. Revelation 21.3 reads, God's dwelling place, this is about the future, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. So Jesus, he's saying to his disciples, this trajectory of scripture, like I'm here bringing this to be. He said, I'm building the church, the people of God. But he makes another exciting truth claim when he says this, I'm going to build the church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, there's a few ways that we can look at this, okay? One is that the gates of Hades represents the attack of the enemy, okay? This, this uh, person, Satan, and his, the, the angels, the demonic forces, right? It's consistent with what we read in Ephesians 6, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the uh, rulers, authorities, and spiritual powers of the heavenly realms, so in other words, the, the church is a place where battle is happening that is eternal, and that battle is against the forces of Satan. Okay, and so now to give this extra meaning, I want to remind you where it is that Jesus is delivering the sermon. It's in Caesarea Philippi, the capital of pagan spirituality. So there's deep meaning here. He comes into the the capital of pagan spirituality, and says the gates of Hades will not overcome it. But what's also important to see here is that in that culture, the gates of Hades was viewed as the passageway from death in this world to the next life. Even if you were a pagan, that's what you believed. You went through the gates of Hades into life. And so when another thing that Jesus is saying here, based on that original understanding is he saying that the church will not only cut, overcome the power of Satan and the power of the enemy, but he'll overcome that passageway into Hades, right? He'll, he'll overcome the power of death. He'll overcome the power of sin. And so the, so the church will do this through Jesus. So there's two meanings, again, in this phrase, right? He'll overcome the power of Satan in the spiritual realm, and meaning, too, that the church will overcome the power of sin and death in the lives of people. Now let's apply this here at Three Lakes, okay? Let's think about this. What Jesus is saying is that he is building Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. You get that? Jesus is building Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. And that the power of Satan and sin, though it is against you, though it may feel subtle sometimes and may feel overwhelming other times, listen to Jesus' words. It cannot overcome you. And so as members of a church planted in 1984, I love it, you've got a recent planting history, there are two observations that I want you to see in this passage. The first is this. Of course, as I've already stated many times, God is building his church. So what this means is, you don't build the church. Good news here. Okay, this means your pastors, past, present, and future, they don't build the church. 
the quality of your programs and the beauty of this building, as beautiful it is, it isn't building the church. So just so you aren't mistaken here, he is the one who's doing it. Jesus is doing it. So we conclude, can conclude no matter how strong our systems, no matter how nice our buildings, no matter how great our preaching, Jesus is the one who gets the credit. He's the one doing the eternal work in the hearts of people. So if anything good and fruitful happens in this place, it's the work of God. And that's why we can sing these songs, Glory to Jesus, right? You're the one who's good. And so he's the one advancing his purposes here in Three Lake, Wisconsin, and beyond to the very ends of the earth. So that's the first observation I want you to see. The second is this, that God is at work in this church and in his larger church to turn back the work of sin and the work of Satan in your community and in the hearts of the people. And so we can safely conclude this. The fact that you're a church, it means you're engaged in a spiritual battle. And so we need to pray diligently, don't we? Inviting God's intercession to advance his purposes through us. And it means we're going to engage in spiritual battle. We're going to feel the darkness, the oppression. We're going to see the brokenness of lives on display all around us. And so don't get surprised, church, when you face hardship and persecution. Because you're in a battle for eternity. For the glory of God against the forces of evil. And so no matter the opposition you feel, no matter the hardships you face at the end of the day, you need to hear this. You can rest assured that God is building the church and that ultimately we know the battle is won. We know the war is won. That God will overcome the power of sin and evil and death. He's going to do it through his church. So take heart this morning knowing Jesus is going to do it, and he's going to do it through you, and he's going to do it through the church. So take heart. Now, to get practical here, uh, you know, that Barna poll that I cited, what was also clear in the data was that the younger a person is in the United States, the more likely they are to embrace a secular worldview. That may not come as a surprise to you, But what that means is our culture in the United States, as beautiful and wonderful our history is, it's growing increasingly secular. Okay? So what this means is is that the message we bring will, will be less and less acceptable to the world around us. And in light of this, as the one who oversees starting of new churches throughout our district, it's no wonder that the landscape of planting churches has changed. I mean, Years ago, back when this church was started, I mean, churches grew a lot more quickly. Now we're finding, in general, when we start a new church, it's slow, hard work. Uh, There's a lot more opposition. There needs to be a lot more life on life, sharing the gospel faithfully with others, bringing the gospel out into the city, into our uh, different workplaces, and it's a slower work. So Christianity, it's it's getting less and less of a come-and-see religion, where you just build a beautiful building and invite people to come. No, we've got to go and tell. We've got to live out our faith. We've got to tell others about Jesus, invite them into our homes. The battle is, is real, right? And so we mustn't let ourselves get discouraged, though, when the hard soil is before us. Why? Again, Jesus is building the church. 
So what's our job? Our job is to just faithfully live on mission and trust him for the fruit. Faithfulness, right? This is all we can do, and it's all Jesus asks us to do. And so we've seen that his purpose is to build the church. And now let's think of the one just a little last nuance of this text, and that is the position of Peter and the power of the keys. Very, very interesting here. Look at verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, it's worth noting that Peter, who he was known as the son of Simon up to this point. Okay, so he's actually given a new name by Jesus. I mean, there's so many significant things in this text. He's given a new name by Jesus, and that name is Petros. Peter, you will be Peter. And what's the position of Peter? Well, it's that he would be the rock upon which Jesus would build his church. Now, there are some faith traditions who see with these words that that Peter is being given this enduring position of authority. Okay? Uh, In these traditions, they view Peter as the first pope. Okay? He's the father of the church. He's a man with great authority. Uh, His enduring leadership is the pillar upon which the church is built. That's what many believe. But to somehow enshrine Peter in this way doesn't really make sense when we look at the scriptures and just see his life. Okay, Let me just give you a little glimpse of that. You see, just a few verses later, Jesus rebukes Peter saying that he's the devil. He says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, Before Jesus was crucified, what do we know Peter did? He denied Jesus three times. In the early church, Paul rebukes Peter because he's letting legalism to seep into the church. In Acts 12 forward, uh, which tells the history of the early church, we see Peter fade into obscurity. What we know historically is that it was James, not Peter, who actually became the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem. And so there's no evidence in light of all that happened following these moments that Jesus was giving Peter an enduring position of authority as the father of the church. So what was Jesus saying in verse 18? What was he saying when he renamed Peter as the rock? Well, to fully understand the answer to the question, I want you to just look at verse 19. It says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. So Jesus calls Peter, the rock upon the church will be built, and he tells him that he'll give him the keys by which people will be bound and loosed, both on earth and heaven. So what in the world could he be talking about? Well, the key to understanding that is found in Acts 2. Let me just summarize briefly. See, in Acts 2, it's the story of the early church. In Acts 2, Peter, Petros, he preaches the first sermon ever given. And this follows the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the people gathered to celebrate Pentecost. And after this great miracle, we see in verses 14 through 41 of Acts 2 that Peter delivers a beautiful sermon. It traces the story of the gospel from the Old Testament to the person and work of Jesus. And in verse 38 of that chapter, we read that Peter appeals to this large crowd. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And after sharing the gospel, something awesome happens. Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Okay? I don't know about you, but, but outside of the uh, resurrection of Jesus, 
Like, this is one of the moments in Scripture that I would, would love to just have seen. Uh, because in that day, you know, the Holy Spirit's poured out, Peter preaches the gospel, and the church is born. And it grows from those core disciples to 3,000 in one day. It's amazing. How awesome would that have been? And so I believe, biblically speaking, that this event at Pentecost explains and answers the question, how is Peter the rock, and what's the meaning behind the power of the keys? You see, Peter was the rock because he was the one to preach the first sermon that would lead to the establishing of the first church. And this event showed Peter using the power of the keys as he preached the gospel to the people. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what is it? It's the key. It's the key that unlocks the door to the human heart, releasing it from the being bound by the power of sin and death and freeing it to new life and new hope in Jesus. And so when Jesus commissioned Peter in this way, he was pointing to his role being used by God to preach the gospel and to establish the first church in Jerusalem. Now, once we understand this, then we can see that everyone who claims to be a Christian is now holding something. Okay, if you're a Christian this morning, you're now holding something. You're holding the power of the keys of the kingdom of God. Because we know from the Great Commission that Jesus commissioned us to be stewards of the gospel, which according to Romans 1.6 is what? It is the power of of God, for the salvation of everyone who believes. You are holding that power. Jesus has entrusted you that message of reconciliation. Now, as we land the plane here on the message, I want to get practical. Okay, I want to speak to three different people in the room for just a moment as we close. The first kind of person is those who've never put their faith in Christ. The second is those who are discouraged because of the lack of fruitfulness in their life. And the third is those who are proud. Those who are yet to recognize that they truly are powerless in and of their own strength to build the church. And so first, to those without faith. I want to remind you of Peter's confession. Right in verse 16 he said, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. With these words, he was placing his faith in God as Savior, recognizing that God alone had the power to save, a power which, of course, we know was on full display on the cross when he died the death we deserve for sin in order to rise from the dead, crushing once and for all the power of sin and death. And so if you're yet to trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, that today I want to invite you, Today is the day, like Peter, you can confess. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God, the Savior. So that's an invitation for you today. The next kind of person who might be in the room this morning is this. The kind of person who is discouraged over the lack of fruitfulness in your life. We all have been there. I want you to reflect what we learned today about Peter. Okay, he was a man with a great calling, and yet he was often a man who lacked faith. He denied Christ openly, and he even faded into the history of the church, into obscurity. 
Now, why is this an encouragement to us? Well, I think it's because it illustrates how God loves to use weak, broken, inadequate people for the purpose of building his church. He loves it. Now, I'm not denying that Peter had a unique role in the church. I think we can all identify with that idea uh, that, that he did. But I don't want us to miss the beautiful illustration his life is that God loves to use weak and broken people for his eternal purposes. Now, it's spoken of by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12:9, where he says, Hear me now, if this is you. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness that Christ's power might rest upon me. Some of you need to hear that today. So take heart. This fallen and broken world, which we feel every day, it's now Christ's world. Okay, it's the theater of his redemption. It's the place of his mission advance over which he has authority for accomplishing his saving work. And God loves to use weak and frail people of the world to shame the strong and powerful. So take heart for those of you who are discouraged today. Rest in the Father knowing this morning that if you feel weak and inadequate, you're exactly where you need to be in order to most glorify God and to build his church for his glory. So be encouraged. And finally, okay, to the proud. (laughs) To the proud who are trying to find their fruitfulness on their own through their hard work and through their performance. What I want to do is I want to tell you a story. There's a story about the great preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, he tells the story of a time when he was gathering with a group of older ministers who were discussing a young minister in the community who had remarkable preaching gifts. Great, great preacher. This preacher was famous among the people. And there was a real hope that God would use him to renew and build up the church. The ministers were all hopeful until one of them spoke up saying these words. Well... All well and good, but you know, I don't think he's been humbled yet. And following this statement, Jones said, the other ministers looked very grim. You see, it was in that moment that something landed on Martin Lloyd Jones that would change his life and his ministry from that day forward. He realized that in that moment... Unless something comes into your life to, to break you of your self-righteousness, unless something comes in your life to break you of your pride and self-sufficiency, you may say you believe the gospel, but the penny hasn't dropped yet. You aren't yet a sign of the gospel in yourself. You don't have the truth of Peter alive within you. You aren't a strength-out-of-weakness kind of person. And so God may need to bring you low before he can truly use you to build his church.
Let's pray together. Father, I just want to pray this application over the people of God today. Father, for those who are far from you, who don't know you, but who now have heard, Father, I pray that they would yield their life to you and proclaim with Peter that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. For others this morning who are discouraged because they aren't seeing the fruit they desire, Father, I pray that that they would find a sense of assurance in the fact that they're right where they need to be. As a matter of fact, they're probably in the best place they can be in order to be used in a mighty way for you. And may that humbling not paralyze them into passivity, but may it empower them to pursue you, to love you, to pray against the power of Satan and sin to do his work here. And Father, to ultimately rest in the fact that you're going to do it. And you're going to do it. And you're going to use them to do it as well. And finally, Father, for those this morning who are proud and who are still going through life, working their you know, hands to the bone, their fingers to the bone, trying to find a sense of significance and worth, and, and you're saying to them, you need to not only preach the gospel, but you need to live it which says, in and of your performance, you are incapable of gaining righteousness and gaining my approval. Father, may that be an encouragement to us today. Humble us that we might be transformed by your work and that we might participate as a faithful servant of your work to advance your kingdom and build your church here on earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm going to invite you now to go in peace and in the strength and power of the Lord. Thanks for being with us today.